Welcome back to a podcast greater than yourself, season two. I'm John Barleycorn. And I am Fred. And once again, this is season two of Podcast Greater Than Yourself, our series called Clear Cut Directions, where each episode a speaker takes you through the clear cut directions for a specific step or steps right out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So yeah, enjoy enjoy this episode. And uh, as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on all the podcasts that are coming out. Reach out to us at podcastgreaterthanyourself at gmail.com. Yeah, or or hit us up on Instagram at podcastgreaterthanyourself or at dr underscore silkworth. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the episode. y'all my name is kirby i'm an alcoholic and my name is john and i'm also an alcoholic and uh we are here today to speak to you lovely people about uh step four um we're really glad that we were asked to to go over this um just because a lot of people really don't know that the book contains these very, very precise instructions um, on how we can recover. And I feel like that is made most abundantly clear when we start to get into the fourth step. Um, I mean, it's just like sentence after sentence of here is exactly how you do this. Um, And I had no idea that that was the case for a really long time until I had somebody walk me through this um, sentence by sentence. And so I am... We're excited to get to do this with y'all today. Um, So we are going to get started. And um, really the fourth step begins uh, on the very bottom of page 63. And there's a couple things that I'd really like to point out. Um, So there's a paragraph right after the third step. Um, So we've got the third step prayer up there in the middle of the page, and we're given some instructions on how to take this third step. We voice it without reservation. We do this humbly, and that's all fine and dandy. And then this next paragraph has some of the strongest language that we've seen so far in the book. Um, It starts off, next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision, the decision that we made in step three to turn our will and our lives over, um, though that decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once, followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. So, there's these phrases and words that this paragraph uses that is trying to get me to see how important it is that I do this right away. I do it quickly uh, and I do it vigorously. Let's see, uh, launched, vigorous, strenuous, at once, you know, it's, it's really, really driving home, um, that I need to do this quickly. Um, 
And I feel like in my experience, I, I did one fourth step at a rehab that I kind of had to do quickly. Um, but it was just a, a sheet of paper that they had printed out for me and handed to me. And, um, nobody read me this paragraph. Nobody told me why I was doing this. Nobody really explained to me what step three was that I was making a decision to go through the rest of the steps to the best of my ability. Um, I was just doing this worksheet. Um, and then my second go round at it, uh, I had somebody read this to me and I knew that I had to get it done quickly. Um, and I think my first fourth step took me two weeks. I think it was maybe max two weeks. Um, so, you know, it's not something that I want to sit in and take forever on. Um, this is something that I want to get done quickly at once and I have to, or else one, two, and three that I've done are, are going to mean nothing. So, so right after this paragraph that explains to me why it's incredibly important for me to get right into this personal inventory uh, and do it right away, quickly, strenuously, it starts to give me, it immediately starts to give me instructions and it immediately starts to give me the mindset that I, that I need to take um, to go through with this step four. Um, so it says, therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It's an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsalable goods, to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. This is how I am to go through this personal inventory. Um, and my sponsor described it to me this way. Uh, so I used to work at Sonic. I was uh, mostly a car hop. I was out there skating around on the little skates, bringing people their food on the trays. Um, but every once in a while, I would have to go back into the freezers and take inventory. And when I took inventory, it was just a check sheet. It was a checklist. It was just a black and white list of all of the stuff we either had or needed to have. And I went back there and I looked on the shelf and I would say, we have three boxes of frozen onion rings. I was not back there looking at a moldy box of onion rings, crying, sobbing to myself, thinking, oh my God, these onion rings, they're bad. How long have they been bad? What truck did they come in on? We need to call the person who grew these onions for the onion ring. You know, it's not this emotional process. It's just onion rings in the freezer. They are bad. There they are. I mark it down on my list and I move on to the next thing. That's the very same mindset that I am to take with this fourth step, um, which is probably something I've never done before. It tells me that I've probably never attempted this personal inventory. Um, and I think... I had, I had probably never looked at my junk, so to speak, um, objectively, you know, onion rings, moldy, tomatoes, bad, milk, sour. I had never done that before. It was always an emotional process, <clears throat> but you know, I'm, I'm looking at these things 
that have already happened in my life. I cannot do anything about them now um, except for note that they're there and then set them aside. Um, so I do that exact same thing with my life, and it talks about how this fourth step is going to take us through three common manifestations of self. So the third step has already convinced me that any life run on self-will is hardly going to be a success. So I've got to look at the manifestations of that self-will in myself. And it tells me that there are three common manifestations of that. Resentment, fear, and sex. So we're going to go through three separate inventories for these three common manifestations. The first one we go through is the resentment inventory. And it tells us why right here. So resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we've not been we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So just like it said at the top of this page, liquor is but a symptom. I've got to get down to these causes and conditions. I've got to look at the spiritual malady. I've got to look at the way self is manifesting in my life so that I can straighten out mentally and physically um, with the obsession and the allergy. When I get this spiritual malady straightened out, those things don't be, are not a problem in my life anymore. So here are the precise, exact instructions for how I do my resentment inventory. Um, I have my sponsees do them in a 90 cent spiral notebook that you can get at Walmart. That's where I do mine in. I don't need to go anywhere and download a worksheet. I know people who, who like with the worksheets and that's totally fine. Um, but this is a four column inventory. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. So here's my instructions for column one of my resentment inventory. It's one sentence. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. That's it. That's all I do for column one. And I don't do um, all of the, the columns at the same time. I don't do um, the person and why I'm angry at them and what affected me and the fourth column, um, my mistakes. I don't do all of that at the same time. I just write my list. I make my master list, people, institutions, principles with whom we were angry. <clears throat> so once I've made that master list of those people, institutions, and principles, I can read the next sentence. We asked ourselves why we were angry. That's column two. That's it. Um, and this is where that um, paragraph before about making this a fact-finding, fact-facing process starts to come in handy. Because when I think about why I'm angry at a certain person, my mind tends to go through this big, long, dramatic scenario. And I'm like, well, it started back in kindergarten. I remember it was a sunny day and we were on the playground. And, you know, I could go on for years and years and years um, and be super overly emotional about listing why I'm upset with this person. Um, this is where this example on page 65 that the big book gives to us uh, comes in really handy as well. Um, so I see Mr. Brown, his attention to my wife, told my wife of my mistress, 
Brown may get the job at the office. Short, sweet, and to the point. He's not being over-emotional. Um, <clears throat> this is not some big, long, drawn-out saga of why he's resentful at Mr. Brown. It's just enough information so that he knows what he's talking about when he goes back through this list. Um, so once I've done that with all of my names, I've got my name, I've got my um, the cause, I can move on to column three. Um, and column three starts to look at what um, the actions or what, what the cause affected in me. Uh, it says, in most cases, we found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened, so we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations, which had been interfered with? Um, and I had a little bit of a difficult time figuring out the differences between some of those things. And my sponsor did a really good job of briefly defining them for me so that I could know exactly what I was looking for um, in these in, in how I had been injured or affected by these causes. Um, so the first one was self-esteem. Self-esteem is how I view myself. Did this person's actions affect the way that I view myself? Uh, and then there's pride. Pride is how I think you see me. Uh, so did this affect the way that I think you think about me. Uh, pocketbook is financial motivations. Did this affect my money? Uh, ambition is desire for rank or fame, which I thought did not uh, matter to me at all. I was like, oh, well, I'm not like a business person or anything, but that's anywhere. That's in my family. That's um, my position in my social circle. That can be my position in like the office at work. Um, desire for rank and fame can be any of those things. Um, personal relationships, time between two people. Did this affect the way that I spend time with this person? Um, did it affect the way that I spend time with a third party? Um, personal relationships is just time between two people. Sex relationships, did this affect my um, sex or romantic motivations in any way? And then finally, um, security. Security is freedom from fear. And so did this, um, did this in any way affect that I affect the way that I feel um, free from fear? So those are the things that I'm looking for. And so I have like really brief blurbs. Um, I keep really brief blurbs of those seven different things at the front of my fourth step notebook. I'm actually going back through my fourth step right now with my sponsor. This is, I think, my third or fourth fourth step. Um, and, I, and I still write those blurbs at the front so that I can flip back and look and check and make sure that I'm, um, that I'm on the right track. So that's really quick. Once I've done that, I've got these three columns. Um, and this is where the instructions start to get really interesting. So I've got these things. Um, 
it gives us this example. I make sure that my work lines up with this example. Because we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. So once I've gotten to this point, I look back at my first, second, and third columns. Um, I make this a prayerful exercise. I ask my higher power to show me anyone I've missed um, or anything that I've missed. Um, I make sure that I've been as thorough and honest as I can be up to this point. And then I flip the page and I do the next instructions. Um, so the book tells me that these three columns are probably as far as I have ever gotten in my life. And when I really think about that, you know, it was true. I loved to sit there and say, oh, well, this person is just the worst in the world. And they did this, 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 and this to me. And that really hurt my feelings. Um, I was great at that. I was a professional <laughs> at figuring out what you did wrong to me. Um, but the book tells me that that is as far as I have probably ever gotten in most cases. And if I ever got further than that, it just became a pity party and a self-hatred party, which was not helpful either. Um, this is the first time I've probably ever tried to look at any of this objectively. Um, so the book tells me, uh, it has this great paragraph on page 66 that tells me why I have got, um, why I've got to, to get rid of all of these resentments that I have probably filled up an entire spiral notebook with. Um, in this middle paragraph on page 66, it says, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal for when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit the insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again, and with us to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. These words that this book is using to tell me why I cannot hold on to these things, grave, fatal, die, poison, like that's what these resentments are to me as an alcoholic. Um, my stepdad, who's a moderate, normal drinker, he can sit there and brainstorm and grouch and be pissed off at people all he wants because he's not an alcoholic. But for me, the book is telling me right here, the insanity of alcohol will return to me and I will drink again and I will die if I don't do this thoroughly and honestly. So, um, you know, I, I move on. It says, we turned back to the list for it held the key to our future. Um, so I've got this list. Uh, and this is going to be the key to my future. So I'm going to want to hold on to this. This is where I will give my, my brief story of the time that I had. A lady had me burn a fourth step in a bird bath at a rehab. She had me burn the key to my future. <laughs> that was the key to my future. <laughs> and I watched it go up in flames and fly away in tiny ashes. And I remember she was like, don't you just feel so much better, honey? And I was like, no, not really. Um, so hold on to this because it's the key to your future. Um, but it says that we. I prepare to look at this from an entirely different angle. 
we began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. Again, this stuff that I have written down that these people have done to me and affected me in this way, this, this has already happened, but it has the power to kill me today. Whether, you know, it's a real thing that this person really did and it really hurt me, um, or whether it was something that I totally made up in my mind that, you know, I think he thinks that I'm a bad person, you know, whatever it is, fancied or real, this can kill me today unless I look at this from an entirely different angle. Um, it says, we saw these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. Um, so, you know, this is, this is how I'm feeling at this point. How am I going to get rid of all this? I've been carrying it around for years. I've tried self-help books. I've tried cognitive behavioral therapy. I've tried therapists. I've tried all this different stuff. How am I going to get rid of this? This was our course. There's the next, here are the next instructions right here. This is exactly what I'm going to do to get rid of this stuff that I've never been able to get rid of before. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Um, so it goes through and it tells us that we're to start looking at these people, places, and institutions and ideas differently. We start to look at them with the viewpoint that they are perhaps spiritually sick, just like I am. Um, this was not an easy concept for me to entertain. Um, I had always been of the mind that these people were wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, but the book tells me that I have to start taking this, this, I, this, um, viewpoint or I will die. So I become convinced that this is something I need to do. Uh, and it introduces us to the sick man's prayer on page 67. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Um, I, and I love the sick man's prayer. I've got a great, um, I've had a great experience with it in that at first I did it completely incorrectly and I thought it was failing me. And then I started doing it correctly and found out, wow, it really works. Um, so I remember one of the big resentments that I had on my first fourth step and still comes up here and there, um, but it was one of those real things, not the not one of the fancied things. It was a real thing um, that happened to me that I could not control um, that was wrong. And I remember asking my sponsor, how am I supposed to get through this? Because I didn't have a part in this. I'm not really sure what was going on here. And she said, well, why don't you say the sick man's prayer for this person? And I remember thinking, huh, not going to happen. Uh, I would rather pray for actual Satan than pray for this person. Um, but she told me that I had to do it or else I would die. She told me what the book said and, and I became convinced. So for about a year, my sick man's prayer for this person sounded like this. Oh, he's just so sick. I'm so sad for him. I'm, I'm just so better now. And Oh God, God bless him. God bless his heart. He's just a sick, sick man. And that's as, that's as, much as I did for my sick man's prayer. I did not do any of the rest of it. There are three more parts of the sick man's prayer. How can I be helpful to him? How can I be helpful to this person, even though they've wronged me? 
God save me from being angry. My anger, the book has already outlined to me, will kill me. God save me from being angry at this person. Thy will be done. I have so many ideas for how I would like this situation to play out, but I need to ask for God's will to be done, not mine. And when I started incorporating those last three parts of the sick man's prayer, um, my resentment for that person began to slip away. And I began to genuinely want to know how I could be helpful. Um, and I, and I began to be saved from my anger. It was crazy. Uh, so once I start to adopt this mindset towards these people on my list, the book gives me further instructions. I'm not done there. That's something I get to carry into the rest of my life and continue to practice. But right now, here are my next concrete instructions for how to do this fourth step. I am to make a fourth column, and this next paragraph tells me exactly what to do. Um, so it says, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. We saw our faults. We listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Um, so the way that I have my fourth step laid out in a, in a notebook, and I, and I wish that I could like telekinetic, telepathically, I, wait, telekinesis is when you move things with your mind. Tele telepathy is when I talk to you in your mind. If I wish I could telepathically show everyone a picture of how I lay my fourth step out in my notebook, because I do it in a way that when I get to this fourth column, I can fold a piece of paper over to where all I'm looking at is this person's name, this institution's name, this principal's name, and my fourth column. I do not see their wrongs or the, you know what they did or how it affected me. I put that out of my mind entirely. And I focus on my faults, mistakes, blames, and wrongs. I hear the fourth column referred to a lot as the my part column. Um, but whenever I think about my part in something, that already is implying that this other person has done something too. Like, oh, well, you know, this is my part. Their part was way bigger. That's already partitioning the blame. I am to put out of my mind entirely anything this person has ever done, whether it was horrible or whether they, you know, honked at me and it startled me at the stoplight the other day. Like whether it's big or small, I put that out of my mind entirely. And I just look at myself. Um, and it gives me the precise things that I am looking for in my behavior in regards to this person, institution, or principle. I am to look for where I have been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Um, and I had a really difficult time figuring out the difference between all of those things in my behavior. Um, so again, my sponsor did a really good job of explaining what I was looking for. So selfishness is my inward expression of self-will and self. So that is... Um, that can be being jealous of somebody for their money. That can be holding a grudge. That can be 
it's, it's my, it's my inward reflection of self. Um, whereas self-seeking is when that inward selfishness starts to come out into the world. So that's when my selfishness drives me to do things like stealing money from people. Um, you know, yelling at someone in an Arby's parking lot. Um, this is when my selfishness goes, is reflected in the outer world. Um, cutting someone off. Um, I'm trying to think of some really good examples. Um, excluding someone. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's just when myself, my selfishness is reflected in the outside world. Dishonesty can be not telling the entire truth. It can be like flat out lying. I used to sit there and tell just straight up lies when this person would know, you know, they would know the truth. And I would just sit there and be like, uh-uh, that's not what happened. You know, so it can be anything from not telling the whole truth to telling straight up lies. It can be being dishonest with myself. It can be convincing myself of something that's not true. Um, justifying my actions to myself. I, that's where I'm looking for my dishonesty. Uh, and then frightened. Where have I been fearful in this situation in regards to this person, place, or institution? Um, and the way that I go through when I look at my fear, um, it's really difficult to do sometimes, but I try to get my fear down to its most basic form. So, you know, if I'm going through my inventory and I say, oh, well, I'm afraid that this person is going to leave me. My significant other is going to leave me. That's why, you know, that was my fear in the situation. I would ask myself why? And I'd say, oh, well, I'm, you know, afraid of being alone. Okay. Why? I try to get my fear down to its smallest, most basic form so that I can start to see um, where my fears are similar across different situations. And it's really cool. Um, but, you know, if I'm unable to do that for a situation, I don't dwell on it too long. I, I just move on. Um, and that really, I think, is the whole trick of it when it comes to the fourth step. It gets this rap, especially the resentment inventory, it gets this rap for being so scary and so emotional and like, oh, I'm going to dredge up all this stuff that I don't want to think about. And that is just totally the opposite of what this is meant to do. It's probably going to be uncomfortable. Yes, but it's, it's quick. I'm, I'm doing this in prayer. I'm doing this with my higher power. I am looking at this stuff objectively that, that, commercial inventory type of mentality. Here's what I have. I'm putting it on this piece of paper. And then later in the steps, I'm going to get to use this stuff again. And I'm going to get to work through this with my higher power. Um, so that's where I think I'm done. And John is going to go through the fear and sex inventory parts of the fourth step. Hey everyone, it is John again, and I am an alcoholic, and I'm going to take over um, on page 67 near the bottom when it starts talking about fear. And uh, Kirby gave great examples on the the fourth step and how these how anger or resentment in particular can really affect us and how it is very grave and, and fatal 
in a spiritual sense and certainly in a physical sense for for some of us. And and I think that the key aspect of the fourth step to, to hone in on, and, and Kirby touched on this, is you know we're getting down to the causes and conditions of alcoholism and understanding that liquor or alcohol was a symptom, right, of these of these causes and conditions. And I always thought it was the problem. I always thought alcohol was the problem. But, you know, the fourth step is is telling us, you know, that it was a symptom. It was a solution to, to the real problem. <clears throat> and Kirby, you know, she talked uh, quite a bit about resentment and, and, and anger, right, and, and how we deal with it in, in a practical sense. And, and I'm going to start jumping into fear. Uh, at the bottom of page 67, it tells us that uh, it tells us to notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, my employer, my wife, and and basically just seeing where the fear is at in terms of the of the third column is what they're doing there and what they're pointing out. And it goes on to tell us on the bo- bottom of page 67 that this evil and corroding it's an evil and corroding thread, and it also tells us that our existence right was shot through with it, right? It was, it, it was omnipresent. And I, I like the word corrode. My sponsor, he, he defined a lot of these words for me just to get me thinking about it a little more thoroughly. And corrode uh, obviously means to destroy or weaken gradually, right? So my, um, I was kind of taught it in this way, fear over time, right? If I'm living a, a life based on fear and it's affecting or manifesting in my life in, in many different ways, right? It goes on to tell us that, you know, it should be classed with stealing and that usually we set the ball rolling with fear, right? It's corrosive in that if, if I continue to live a fear-based life, right, and it's with me all the time, it, it's it's going to be really difficult to, to, to live uh, happily or, or, or live usefully. It tells us that it sets in motion trains of circumstances we, which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. And just like I referenced, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling, right? So just like with, with uh, the resentments, right, we're looking at causes and, and conditions, right? This, alcohol was only a symptom. And so what do we do with fear? It tells us we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, and every inventory I've written, I have handwritten, right? I put everything on paper, and, and I'm pretty sure Kirby touched on that as well. But I, I'm writing this stuff down. Um, and it says um, to put them on paper, even though we have no resentment in connection with them. So after I've done the, the four-column inventory, uh, what I did is just move on from that, and then I... Um, just wrote a separate fear inventory and and it was very simple. It was very to the point. I am afraid of such, right. And some of them were very practical, like I'm afraid of snakes or spiders or whatever have you. But then there was also the fear of, of pride and the, the fear of security and self-esteem. That's kind of referenced in the third column, right? I'm afraid that this person doesn't like me, or I'm afraid that I'm not going to, you know, be successful in the career that I'm in. Right. Or I'm afraid my significant other is going to leave me. I'm, you know, I'm afraid that, I'm not liked or whatever have you, right? There's, there's that type of fear as well. So that's what I did. I just wrote it out on paper. And then I asked myself, why did I have this fear? Right. And, and the book answers this question for us. And it tells us it's usually because self-reliance has failed us on page, pages 61 and 62. You know, it's, we, we've learned that living a life 
on self, right? Or where we're trying to arrange the scenery, arrange the lights, um, basically forcibly twist life to suit ourselves. It tells us that, it, you know, we're headed for trouble. It's very dangerous to live that way. Um, and so fear is it, combined with, with this selfish motivations, right? And this self-seeking behavior is, is a, a really deadly concoction. Um, self-reliance failed us, right? We, we've learned that we cannot force people to do what we want, or we cannot arrange life to suit ourselves. Right. And so that was, for me, that was a, a lot of the, uh, the, that's where a lot of the fear, uh, rose up from. Right. So it's, it all comes back to self. Um, it says some of us though, some of us have great, once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully, fully solve the fear problem or any other when it made us cocky, it was worse. And that reminded me of uh, Fred's story, right? Where he talks about it was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon, right? As he crosses the, the threshold of the dining room. Um, I, unfortunately, <laughs> I was never in this class, right? I, most of my fear and, and, and sex uh, came uh, intertwined, right? And, and it was, it, as I said, it was omnipresent. Um, so if you, if you do feel like you've solved it, or if you feel like, you know, you've got fear figured out, uh, that, that, that's actually worse, right. As, as the book says, uh, so it tells us, you know, perhaps there's, there's a better way, um, cause we are now on this, this different basis, right. And, and that basis they define as trusting and relying upon God, uh, it tells us that we trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns, right. So this third step, decision that I've made, right? To let God run the show, right? To turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Um, this, this is what it's referring to, right? I am now in this world to play the role he assigns. And, and the more I'm doing that, the more I'm aligning my, you know, self-will or, or just general will with God's will, the less fear I'm going to experience. Um, it says, just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Really love that sentence, right? I mean, how much of my life am I going to give to God? Am I going to give everything to God or just just these few things, right? And still try and run the show in, in, in my work life or in home life or, or um, in social circles, like whatever have you, right? You know, it, it tells us, um, you know, the more we rely on God, the more we give to God, you know, the less we're going to feel this calamity, right? Or these undesirable consequences or explosions, th these emotional explosions that are always, you know, almost always the effect of our motivations and ourself, uh, our selfish interests. Um, so um, the book in this next paragraph, it uses the word courage twice. And I believe this is the only, the, uh, the only point in which it uses the word courage in, in, in the first 164, 164 pages, the program and courage, you know, is the, is an antonym for fear, right? Um, so once I wrote my fear, my resentment inventory and my fear inventory and started to see where a lot of this was, was, driving me to drink and, and leading me to a really unfulfilling life where I, where I, that felt futile. Um, I start to learn that, you know, 
doing God's will is not always going to be easy, right? And, and, and I am going to have to have some courage, right, in, in doing this. Um, and it says that uh, the verdict of the ages is, is that faith means courage, right? All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. So by doing all of the, the work and having an experience with it, right, it, other people and, and but most importantly myself got to see what God can do, right, something that I had nothing to do with. And this courage, you know, I think it's, it's really important because in, in my experience, um, you know, you're obviously writing an inventory takes courage, if you will, but also reading it to someone else in step five, right? We got to have this courage. Um, eventually when we, we make amends, we, we got to have this, this courage. Um, and eventually once we're carrying the message to other alcoholics, right, we got to have this, this same courage. So I think the book, you know, it, and especially here, it's, it's telling us that, you know, we can outgrow fear, right. If, if we take this action, right. If we take this courage into all of our affairs, um, let him demonstrate through us what he can do. And uh, the next direction, it says, we ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. Um, and it uses the word be there, which I think is touched on a lot. Um, and this, strangely enough, always works, Right. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've done this, right? Just said this prayer, um, not, you know, not just because I'm writing inventory, but just in general life, right? I'm in 10, 11, and 12, and, and I'm experiencing fear. Um, very straightforward. We ask him to remove our fear and have our attention, direct our attention to what he would have us be. And sometimes, you know, that's to be calm. Um, you know, sometimes it leads me to an action, just like I said, with, with, you know, and having courage to, to take an action or do something that I do not want to do. Um, but almost always, right. It, 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 it enables me to outgrow fear. And I can tell you, I can tell you from my own experience that, um, carrying the message into a treatment center or a jail for the first time was terrifying. And I I, but I did it. I, and I, you know, so God was doing something for me, right? Let him demonstrate through you, right? What he can do. And, and, you know, uh, uh, over the years that I've, that I've been sober, right. I've been presented with challenges, if you will, or where action needs to be taken. Right. And, and I need to, to get out of self and, and, and I do, right. I come to God, I ask for direction. He gives me an opportunity and I outgrow fear. Right. And, it's that's that's just how it's worked for me right so that the steps and and the rest of this work does take courage but you know if you want to outgrow your fear maybe do what the book suggests um so in a nutshell fear we get it down on paper we list our fears we ask why we have them and you should come to the conclusion that it's because you you know self-reliance fails you you know and, and you cannot you cannot expect to manage your life, your emotional state, especially your alcoholism, all simultaneously, you know, and, and, and live successfully in, in this world. 
you've got to, you know, submit yourself to a, to a different way of life. And, and the 12 steps were, were that path for me, right. That different way of life. And, and it gave me much more than, than, um, than I bargained for, uh, in a good way. So moving out of fear, we're going to move into sex now. And it starts at the bottom of page 68, right? And, and as I said, a lot of my, my fear, um, came twined with, with sex issues or, you know, relationship issues. And, and almost every single guy that I work with, when I mentioned to him that we're going to have a sex inventory, you know, I, I've heard this response so many times it's, well, I haven't had sex with that many women and, and they, and, and they seem to get a little bit, um, withdrawn and like a little bit ashamed of that. And I felt that way too, but this is not about how many, you know, partners you've had by any means, right? This is an inventory of my motivations around sex and my sex conduct, right? Um, this has nothing to do with how many times you've done it. <laughs> it, it. It's, it's about motivations around sex. It tells us that many of us needed an overhauling there. Uh, I like the word overhaul. It's, it means to take apart in order to be examined and repair if necessary. Right. Some of us don't, some of us figured out the relationship thing, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it says many of us needed an overhauling and, and I like that word overhauling. It's, you know, it's, it's a great word to kind of describe what the whole inventory is, right. We're taking things apart, we're examining it and we're seeing what needs to be casted out right in six and seven. Um, but it says many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we try to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Absolutely true. It's very easy to get off the track in the sex inventory. Um, and why is that? <laughs> Tells us right here. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, right? Human opinion. Uh, absurd extremes, perhaps. So we, And then it gives us these two sets of voices. And this idea of a straight pepper diet did not know what that was for years. But let me, let me explain to you how it was explained to me. So it says we have the set of voices that say sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. <laughs> right. Um, and then, and then on, on the other hand, or on, on the, the contrary, we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes, think that we don't have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. So we have these two schools of thought, right? We have the one school who would allow no man, no flavor for his fare, right? Or, so, you know, no sex, right? Just, just abstain. And then we have the school of thought uh, that would have us all on a straight pepper diet. Pepper diet meaning like a hot, like chili pepper, like spicy diet, which <laughs> is is. I've never heard of it put that way, but it made sense to me once it was explained, right? So it's a lot of sex, right? So we got these two schools of thought. So you can very quickly see how the sex inventory can be misunderstood and you can get all these different opinions and why then the next set of information is so important, right? Because it tells us we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, right? We all have sex problems. We hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? So 
if anyone is telling you what you should not should or should not be doing in your relationship that, uh, that, that we're not supposed to be doing that. We are not supposed to be telling other people how to operate or how to behave in terms of their sex conduct, right? We, we are not that person and no sponsor or old timer should be that person. Um, it says we reviewed our own conduct over the years past. And here's where I, I call this out on, on paper, right? Uh, so following my fear inventory, you know, so I got the resentment inventory, once that is finished, then I have this fear inventory, and now we have the sex inventory all in the same spiral. You don't have to write it in a spiral, but it certainly helps to have it in a spiral. And I believe this is 11 columns, uh, but it's basically where we've been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate. Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. So that's that's exactly what I did. I, I subjected each relationship or each any any person that I had sexual motivations with, I, I columned out in, in this way. And and I, I put each of them in this column and, and asked myself all these questions and answered them. And it tells us with that information, right, we tried to shape a, a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. And again, these, these, these questions are very pointed and they should be very easy to answer. And, it, and you know, uh, one of the questions there is, uh, here is whom had we hurt? A, a lot of my uh, sex inventories that I've written, I find that sometimes they are affecting other people way more so than the, the actual person in the relationship itself. Um, so other people are going to be showing up on this inventory. Uh, the unjustifiably arousing jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness, right? That's that all comes back to the to, to self, right? And wanting to arrange uh, the show to suit ourselves, or you know, if only this person would behave as I want them to, right? And that's what I saw a lot of in my own inventory. Um, and then and then it asks us again. They bring up this this uh, idea of being at fault, right? Just like they did in the resentment inventory. And then it asks us what should we have done, right? So in, in the what sh- what should we have done instead column. Um, in, in my inventories was kind of helped shape my new sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Uh, so it tells us to subject each relation to this test and ask ourselves, was it selfish or not? Right. And then it, here's where it tells us to ask, right. Just like with the fear, it tells us we ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Here it's telling us we asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. So here's where we're going to bring it into prayer. Um, it tells us we remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, never to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. Um, so through all this, we get to shape this new ideal. And then it tells us we must, Right. I don't know why people say there are no musts in AA. There's like 500 in this chapter. It tells us we must be willing to grow toward it, right? We must be willing to grow towards this ideal, this new ideal, Um, especially if our sex conduct was harming a lot of people, right? It says we must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. Some some people, I myself made the mistake of wanting to make my first, very first amends. I wanted it to be my ex-girlfriend, the one I still had feelings for, right? Is that going to cause more harm, right? Should we focus on your your family or, or, or others first, right? So we want to we be careful that 
if we are going to be making amends to these people we have harmed, that it's not going to bring about still more harm, right? Do they still smart for your injustices to them? Um, which, you know, that's later on in amends and, and obviously uh, stuff for your sponsor to help you with. But um, it tells us that, in other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, right? <laughs> the word meditation is here in the sex inventory. It says we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. I really love this. I, I have a lot of experience uh, uh, with this. There, there have been, in terms of my sex conduct and the harm that I have caused, uh, there have been times where in meditation I, I, I wanted to ask God for, for the right answer, especially in, in, in with specific relationships. And, and I was meditating on it and asking God for direction with it. And I there was a part of me that, you know, the right answer was there, but I did not want it, right? It says the right answer will come if we want it. And I ended up causing harm, being like completely fear-stricken for, for weeks and and not drinking, but just not in a good place, right? Because I, I did not want the right answer. So this this is a really important direction here, right? It bring, you know, shape this ideal, bring it into meditation um, in 10 and 11, and, you know, the right answer will come if you want it. And in my experience, right, and we're going to go on to talk about how if sex is very troublesome, what to do. In my experience, you know, I never wanted the right answer, right? Being being a 22-year-old man <laughs> in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I wanted to do what I wanted to do, right? And and I, I but I, I was... I could start to see where I was causing a lot of harm and it was actually just making things way worse for me, right? Setting the ball rolling like we've talked about with fear. Um, so very important uh, directions there. Uh, it says God alone can judge our sex, sex situation, right? So if your sponsor is or someone in the program is judging your sex situation, again, we're not supposed to be doing that. We are not the arbiters. God alone judges your sex situation. Um, we let God be the final judge. Um it also tells us to avoid hysterical thinking or advice, right? Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with that. But it's, it's, you know, it's very true. Um, you, uh, being a young person in AA, there was some hysterical thinking and there was some hysterical advice and you, you got to be careful with that, right? Because just like it says, it's so easy to get way off track here. Um, again, just come back to, to the ideal. What, you know, what kind of person do you want to be in a relationship, right? Because we, we can no longer, cause harm. Um, so it tells us if we do fall short of this chosen ideal and stumble, right, or not live up to the ideal that we're trying to generate with the sex inventory, um, it's, it says, does this mean we're going to get drunk? Uh, it tells us that that's a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives, right? If we are sorry for what we have done, and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson, right? So if you're trying to live up to this ideal and perhaps you stumble along the way, like I did, right? Um, you know, I, I did not drink, but I certainly felt remorse and 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 made amends where, where amends needed to be made early on in my sobriety. Um, but it says if we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink, right? And it says we are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. It says to sum up about sex, 
uh, again, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, ask for the right ideal, bring this into meditation, right? Let God guide you in all this. That's for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. Very key sentence here. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others, right? I, I have had to do this many times. And, and it's when it says if sex is very troublesome, it's not the physical act of, of sex, obviously. It's can you, are you having trouble only thinking about this partner, right? That broke your heart or is, you know, is dating someone else or cheated on you, right? You know, or something that I, that I did a lot of, uh, there was a young person's meeting that had a lot of attractive people at it when I was early on in sobriety and it was on Friday nights, which was the, which coincided with the night that my home group would take meetings to a treatment center. And I always wanted to go to the young person's meeting, but over time and after writing this inventory, I found myself in that treatment center on those Friday nights (laughs) every time. Right. And, and it, it was so beneficial for me. Right. Because it tells us that we think of, it tells us to think of their needs and work for them, but it also says this takes us out of ourselves, right? It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. So in my experience, you know, if, if I'm thinking a lot about this, this person that I want to be with that doesn't want to be with me or, you know, whatever the scenario may be, right? If, if I can't stop thinking about sex or sex motivations or <clears throat> whatever have you, um, throw yourself into working with others, right? I, I, many a sponsee has called me with relationship advice or relationship trouble. And I tell them, I do not know, go chair a meeting, go, you know, take a meeting to a treatment center and, and bring this all into 10 and 11, right. And, and let God answer that for you. Um, and it works time and time again. There have been many, you know, I, I had a few rough relationships in, in the program, right? And when I say rough, just relationships that didn't necessarily go my way. And I would always throw myself very hard into service work when they kind of went south. And one, I did not drink. And two, it, it helped me develop that ideal that I wanted to live up to and, and grow towards more towards what God would have for me, right? And, and I got to, uh, to eventually attain that. Um, and that's what the, the, the sex inventory, just inventory in general can, can promise you, right? It's, this is the key to your future, right? Meaning that it's going to, it's going to help you down the line when, not only when you're making amends, but just live up to the person that you want to be right with, with God's help, right? This is where the unmanageability, you know, can start to get solved, right? Let God give you that power that you so desperately need and live up to the person that you want to be and be youthful, of course. So with this entire inventory of, of resentments, fear, and sex, right, it tells us that, you know, if we have been thorough, that we've written down a lot, right, and we've started to understand our resentments, comprehended what made them fatal and what made them futile. Uh, we've seen their terrible destructiveness, and uh, more importantly, though, we have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards others, even our enemies, right? Because we've looked on them on sick people. Just to hone in on it one more time, you know, these these are the the causes and conditions of our alcoholism. And more than anything, we need God to remove this self-will and this selfishness that for so long domineered my life and, and a lot of my decision-making. And this is the inventory of that. And then ultimately, 
through step five, six, and seven, uh, we get to have a lot of this removed, right? And we get to experience that freedom. And most importantly, we get to be restored to usefulness, right? So that we can eventually carry this message to others. And that takes swallowing and digesting some big chunks of truth about yourself. Thank y'all for listening to Clear Cut Directions. We hope that we were able to shed some light on the instructions that the book gives around the fourth step. We're really happy to be part of this. Uh, again, I'm Kirby. And I'm John. Very happy to be a part of this as well. Thank God. Happy inventorying. This has been a podcast greater than yourself. Podcast Greater Than Yourself was created by recovered alcoholics. All involved in the creation of this podcast are active members of Alcoholics Anonymous who wish to carry the message of our own recovery to those who still suffer. We do not claim to represent Alcoholics Anonymous. All comments are from our own experiences as alcoholics who have recovered by following the directions for the 12 steps found in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks for listening.